Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, everybody. This is Danny Tenaglia from Brooklyn, New York, and you are listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast, hosted by me, the Managing Editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're all missing that sense of togetherness that the dance floor can bring us, so we at House Culture are thrilled to be able to bring a little bit of the club directly into your world. I must mention that this is the final episode in this second season of the House Culture Podcast. I know, sad times, right? I want to thank everyone who has listened, enjoyed and gotten in touch through what's proved to be a massively tough year for us all. However, don't panic. We will, of course, be back at some point in 2021, fully refreshed and ready to greet you back to Clubland with more amazing stories from our eclectic set of guests. And if you haven't already, please make sure you get yourself acquainted with our back catalogue of episodes that feature interviews with characters such as David Morales, Harry Romero, Terry Farley, Danny Rampling, Ashley Beadle and Fatboy Slim himself, Norman Cook. Even if there is a name you don't recognise, I guarantee you they have a fascinating story to tell. Also, if you've only just stumbled across House Culture and want to get to know us a little better, as I always say, we are a collective of house music fans who have come together through our mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Instagram is where the party happens. You can find us there at House Culture Net. Follow that and you'll get a daily dose of all things related to this scene we know and love. Let's get on with this next episode, shall we? In this one we chat to a man who is as famous for his marathon sets as he is for being the DJ's DJ. It's the master of the Miami Winter Music Conference, the titan of Twilo, the beatmaster of Brooklyn. I'm so pleased to announce that it's none other than Danny Tanaglia. In this chat, 
We find out what clubs had an impact on him whilst he was growing up in New York. You gotta go to the Paradise Garage. So in some point of 1979, I finally went. I remember every moment of walking up that famous ramp and the neon Paradise Garage sign at the top of the register and the anticipation and the curiosity. What his early ambitions were as a DJ. All I could ever dream back then was crossing that bridge from Brooklyn to Manhattan and working in a big club. It was just, you were the DJ and you were making people dance, period. And that's all I desired to do. How he developed his signature sound at one of his iconic residencies. And then Twilo opened. I played an energy that was not trancey, but on a lower level, like the tribally stuff, edgy drummy stuff and the secrets behind the creation of some of his most well-known productions. I take the most pride in Be Yourself, Music is the Answer, and Elements for me. Those are my personal favorites, and I'll tell you why. He put me in contact with Salida, and she just said right over the telephone, dancing and prancing, grooving, immediately I caught it. Boom. So prepare yourself, as we're going to take you on a tour through the life Danny Tanaglia. House Culture. Hi, Danny. We are truly blessed to have you join us on the House Culture podcast. Well, thank you. <laughs> I feel blessed that you feel blessed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're a DJ that has participated in the rise of the dance music scene from dancing at the Paradise Garage, influential residencies at Twilo and Vinyl as well as hosting epic parties at the Miami Winter Music Conference. However, we always want to understand where our guests' love of music first came from. Can you tell us about how you first discovered music that you loved when you were growing up in Brooklyn? So I guess it would all have to start with my childhood as I came from a pretty typical American-Italian family in Brooklyn and a very large family. And they would often have gatherings and parties and picnics and backyard events. I mean, a good word to add to this is fiesta because some of my relatives, one might play the accordion, one might play a guitar. There was always a microphone and an amplifier. It's kind of like karaoke, I guess, you know, before karaoke, but it would be festive. Like there would be dancing. Somebody might even be playing the spoons on their knee, you know? And I was so attracted to this as a child. And of course, it then it went beyond just those family gatherings. It'd be like if somebody was playing music at the house or if I went to a relative's house and my cousins were playing records, it was like a magnet for me. And other kids might've been playing with toys or baseball or this or that. I had zero interest practically. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe if I was playing a sport or playing with a toy with the other kids, if music came on, it was like, eh, like a deer in the headlight. I had to stop and just, okay, now my attention is on that. So yeah, that's the groundwork for my initial love and passion for music. It came from family and the joy of instruments and watching them work together and, you know, be a part of something. Mm-hmm. And I guess I thought maybe as I got into like my five, six, seven year old age, and maybe family took me to gatherings that might have had live bands. And then I was attracted to that at the front of the stage or whatever. I always thought that maybe one day I'd be in a band, you know, and yeah. it, 
through just instant love. And I always enjoy saying that whenever we went to a restaurant with the family, if there was a jukebox, I was always at the jukebox. <laughs> They're like, where's Danny? You don't have to ask. He's by the jukebox or, you know, or if there's a band, he's standing right there watching them. What kind of age did you start to buy music and really kind of invest? And what things were you buying and purchasing? What age? So before I started purchasing my own records, I, I remember families telling stories of me not even being old enough to read. And they would tell me, Danny, play that Beatles song, She Loves You. And I wouldn't know what it says in the record, but I would remember <laughs> the image. Yeah. You know, so it was it was crazy that they almost test me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but even being a selector at that kind of age, that's incredible. Yeah, it's kind of like telling kids to put the zero where the zero goes and the X where the X goes and mm -hmm. just playing games. And uh, I think by the time I was, let's say, 10, 11, that's when I think I started getting hit with the James Brown, Jackson 5, Motown, Philly era. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you what the first record I bought was, but I can tell you that it was around that era. I was born in 1961, and in 1971 was the year that Soul Train hit the airwaves. Mm -hmm. And it was also the year that the Jackson 5 were given their own cartoon. So every Saturday morning, I was glued to the TV for Soul Train and the Jackson's cartoon. And I guess just it developed really from there, like the whole, okay, this is turning into dance music. Because mm -hmm. I saw people dancing on TV. I got drawn into that. And I became a fanatic for Philly and Motown. <laughs> I mean, that is like the original foundation of, you know, that lush, especially the Philly sound, that lush instrumentation, yeah. you know, real soulful disco sound stems from there. It really is the origination of house music, Philadelphia sound. You know, yeah. all the players of the MFSB orchestra, which back Gene Carn and the Jones Girls and Teddy Pendergrass, those musicians were basically the same musicians that were the South Soul Orchestra. Mm -hmm. So that sound was just so prominent in disco. And then how many times, you know, Dr. Love and Let No Man Put Us Under were sampled <laughs> in uh, Lolita Holloway in house yeah, music. Absolutely. But those roots for me, you know, I can even share probably something that I've never shared in a conversation. I remember there was a producer from France. His name was Jacques Morali. You know, lived the dream of coming to America, mm -hmm. putting the South Soul Orchestra in the studio. He flew to Philadelphia to Sigma and created the, the group, the Ritchie family. What I wanted to add from that was that Jacques Morali went on to create the Village People. So every record by the Village People were produced by Jacques Morali. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, he passed away in his young 40s, but he made an impact, you know, with all those Richie family albums. I don't know if all of the albums were then South Soul Orchestra, Philadelphia people, but I just wanted to interject that to show how it spread from this guy hearing MFSB in Paris or France, yeah. and then went on to create the Richie family and the village people, yeah. how it just you know, and this is the 70s, early 70s. Yeah. So what was your first experience of kind of witnessing someone behind the decks or holding court in terms of partying or anything like that? Was there a moment where you saw it and thought, actually, I could kind of get involved with this? It's an interesting question because, 
you, you got my brain spinning here because for a minute now I'm thinking I was too young to go out. Mm. So when I discovered the art of DJing, it was before I ever even witnessed one. I was just basically 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And my grandparents owned a, like a bodega deli, in, you know, two blocks from where I lived. My cousin was working behind the counter. He was playing an eight-track tape that was mixed by a DJ. And he knew that I was a music fanatic. And when I, once I heard the records weave together, I was like, how do you do that? <laughs> I felt like a dog. <laughs> my ears went up. And I was fascinated. And he's explaining to me that he goes to this club called Butterfields, or it used to be Monastery, and that there was a DJ named Paul Casella who worked there. Mm. And instead of a band, they have a guy that plays records. And I'm like, really? So, you know, he's explaining it to me. And I looked at the eight-track tape, and there's a stamp on it. It says, Paul Casella, eight-track tapes, and his number. So I called the number. <laughs> and Paul was like, who is this? You know, I'm a little kid. I tell him, oh, my name is Danny. My cousin's playing your eight-track tapes, and I wanted to know more about it. And, you know, because I love music. <laughs> and I don't know what I said. I wish to God I had that phone call taped. And he said, where are you? I said, I'm on Metropolitan Avenue in Brooklyn. He goes, stay right there. I'm coming to this deli. I want to meet you. I'm only like 10 blocks away. Coincidence. Wow. So he drives over to the deli. He recognizes my cousin from the club. Mm-hmm. Cousin's like, yeah, he's a fanatic for music. He brought more A-tracks to give me. And I basically studied him, you know, because I didn't have any access, you know, allowed to go out. Mm. And so that was my first introduction to DJing. Just through tapes? Yeah, A-track tapes, yeah. Paul Casella. So you, were, you said you were studying him. So you were literally just headphones on, just working out how he's weaving it together, mixing it. And this is, you know, long before YouTube or anything <laughs> that I could watch people doing it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it's kind of funny that uh, I can't actually recall the first time I saw a person doing it, mm. but my guess is is that it would be would have been in Brooklyn, maybe like an outdoor park thing where we used to have DJs and setups. And eventually I did that when I turned 16, got my own equipment and I would set up in the park. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that like? Literally just rocking up to the park. Did you have to have like a crew looking after you in case like you get anything stolen or how did that work? Well, first of all, we would have to get like a shopping cart from the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> put this in, the amp, the speakers, the turntables in there. We were rolling the shopping market. I mean, the shopping cart from the market to the park, which is like eight blocks away or so. And then in order to get electricity, we would tap into the light pole, which was illegal. The Italians and the Puerto Ricans, they get crafty together. <laughs> so they would bust the cap off the light post and tap into the electricity. And of course, you know, it was always uh, not long before police showed up and broke it up. But, you know, sometimes we did get a couple of hours in. Nobody ever got in trouble. What was your then first experience like going actually into a club? Can you remember that when you finally got to that age where you were like, finally, I can, I can get in? Or, or was there some under the radar stuff where you were sneaking in? My two older brothers took me to that particular club that Paul Casella worked at. Mm-hmm. That was, I forget if it was still Butterfield. It was now Butterfield's but it used to be called Monastery. I think I was like 14, 15. And my brothers, by going there often, spoke to the bouncers. They said, listen, we just want to bring my kid brother in. He just wants to see it. Not going to hang out, get him out in 10 minutes. 
because this particular club back in like 1975, gentlemen had to be 25 and wear jackets and women had to be 23 to get in. Wow. So here I am 15, like little peach fuzz over here, penciling it in, wearing my John Travolta spongy heels. (laughs) (laughs) And I was mesmerized. Paul wasn't there that night. Mm. It was a female DJ named Jenny Costa. And I'm still in touch with Paul Casella. Yeah. He dropped out of the business many years ago. He's got wife and family, but he's a super cool dude. Mm. So Jenny Costa was playing and she was like, who's this little kid? You know, my brother's like, he just wants to see. So she took me to the booth. I'm looking at the turntables and the mixer. It was the usual original 1200s and the Bozak. That's what everybody was using back then. And then that same night, they took me to another popular nightclub in Queens called Elephus. It's like elephant in Spanish. And Elephus became very popular in the news media because that's where the son of Sam, (laughs) the famous, did shootings. And he shot people outside of the right outside the club that were in their car at the moment. So I didn't stay there long either. They brought me in there. And here I was in another different type of disco environment. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. I guess it was, you know, between the childhood of the family and the accordions and this and that, the instruments and the jukeboxes and the bands, now seeing turntables, I knew this was it. There was just zero interest for anything else. Like let's say I was in school, math, science, algebra, world history, blank. (laughs) It's like, I didn't want to know anything else. And this was a little problematic for my family. Yeah, and then I guess the rest is really full history where I totally grasped DJing before I even was allowed to cross the bridge to Manhattan to go to a club like The Loft, yeah. in Mancusi, just blocks away from our house. There was a, cl- uh, a lounge called the Miami Lounge, and it was a typical bar, pub. You walk in, there's a long bar, pool table, but in the back they had banquet seating and I guess they had a disco ball and they used to have live entertainment. Now they were starting with the DJ thing. Uh, maybe we should get a DJ. So I was 16, going on 17, and I had just got my equipment, you know, nothing fancy, two turntables and a mixer, and I brought it there and I had to be chaperoned by my older brothers and my parents wanted me them with me all the time and have me home by 1 a.m. So I played nine to one and that's when it started. So within that period, now disco is exploding Mm -hmm. and I'm right in the heart of it. So I went pre-disco with the early Philly, Delphia sound, you know, Philly MFSB stuff Mm -hmm. and all the related bands that they backed as well as the Motown sound and then disco hit yeah and those uh, those early gigs for you obviously being chaperoned by your brothers and playing nine till one was that you know what was the kind of crowd reaction was it like almost a novelty that there was such a young guy like playing this amazing music or did people really have not have a relationship from the dance floor to the dj at that point no they did it was uh it wasn't many strangers it was all neighborhood people you know friends of friends and cousins and you know, everybody knew everyone in this pub. It was yeah. just a local joint, you know. So whoever came to the back where the DJ was, 90% of the time I knew who they were. Yeah. So, but it was funny seeing people that I knew from the neighborhood or school or my brother's friends, cousins dancing, you know, because that in itself was a whole, like, you know, <laughs> curve. 
and then there were a bunch of pains in the asses, you know, Danny, play that song, uh, Copacabana, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, most part I had to, but as a lot of it was popular, that the disco stuff started coming out, but it really was there that the Giorgio Moroder, Donna Summer, because that was the 1975-76 zone. So, I mean, you've already mentioned the loft as well and the Paradise Garage. Obviously, you had your first visit there in 1979. Yeah. What 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 came first for you? Was it a visit to the loft or a visit to the garage? And just take us through how you discovered that and your experiences when you walked through those doorways. I would say <clears throat> I'm not 100% sure that the loft was the first club I went to in Manhattan, mm-hmm. but it was not the garage. I was probably 18. Now I was allowed to cross that bridge, you know, without permission. And I know I went to the loft before the garage mm-hmm. and yeah, I was mesmerized, but my mind is at the same time as I'm thinking about the loft, I'm thinking about other clubs that I went to mm-hmm. before the garage that made a big impact on me and a lot of learning. A lot of absorbing, digesting what these DJs were doing. And, you know, there was music played. It could have been Trans Europe Express mm-hmm. and other Peter Brown type of funky stuff. And then the main stuff would have been the high energy disco, Cerrone yeah. and all that popular stuff. But when I went to the loft, because these are the most prominent of like, okay, now I'm born again. <laughs> So when I went to the loft, what I loved about it is that you really felt like you're in somebody's house. Mm -hmm. It was nothing fancy about it. There were some tables, small tables and folding chairs scattered around. There was balloons. And it just felt like you were at a birthday party, but (laughs) a mature person's birthday party, you know? Mm -hmm. And David Mancuso was pretty high up at that point in that particular venue in the DJ boots it wasn't easy access mm-hmm. but I could see him and I remember the first song I was playing it was the Mike Theodore Orchestra playing the bull here comes the bull yeah <laughs> I was playing when I walked in so of course I immediately wanted to become a member which I did and their membership card was a picture of the little rascals sitting around the table and you know I felt like I belonged to something you know I had this membership card and I finally went you know, got in the loft. But I wanna, what I also want to mention before the Paradise Garage is the club that nobody talks about. Mm-hmm. I think I'm probably the only New York DJ that was incredibly inspired by a club called Starship Discovery One. Had a futuristic kind of like NASA theme. It was a three-level nightclub with the main room being on the top floor with the big dance floor, the big sound system neon lights and what have you and the djs were phenomenal the mixing was the precision you know it just took me back to paul and what i really learned david mancuso wasn't so much about the mixing mm-hmm. you know but it was great music you didn't care and that's also a part of the mentality to help to feel like a house party you know not yeah. some like structured disco but when i got to power uh start discovery there was uh two djs mainly that i remember their names three and they were all gay some one was uh joey palmentary ernie dundee and tom savarese and these are names that you don't hear in the you know in today's like uh walter gibbons uh tom Moulton, you know but these three guys were amazing flawless is the word and i was able to they were ground level and the dj booth was enclosed and the window to the DJ boots were these big bubbles. I guess that was the spaceship concept. 
And I used to just stare into the window and watch them, including the light man. I was mesmerized by the lighting people yeah, because it was so in sync with what the DJ was doing. And again, if it was music, you knew the changes and the keypad back there at the time, like touch sensitive. So it would look like the guy was playing the piano to the music. So the lights were interacting with each part. And me being a frustrated keyboard player, because I was attracted to that as a child too. I went for lessons. I was just watching the guy playing the lights, the guys playing the records. And this is again, before the Paradise Garage. Mm. And so this was the first club that made the most impact on me before I went to the garage. Yeah. It made an impact on me musically and being a part of something, being part of like a community of people that were just there for love, music, gay, straight, black, white. You know, again, I was just 18. I wasn't sure where I fit in, you know, because mm -hmm. I felt like I was black, white, straight and gay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what a prince. <laughs> but Starship was a mixture as well of everything. Mm. Probably the first time I saw like a mixture of transgenders and stuff too, because in the, the below was a cabaret and these mm. shows and the host was a famous transgender person, like comedian. Mm. So he would be dressed in drag, kind of like, you know, let's say RuPaul, but he didn't wear a wig, so he was bald. So I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a man in a dress with these big earrings and all that, but he doesn't wear a wig. <laughs> Uh, you know, British type of drag, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we just don't try very hard. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, so I saw that collaboration of people, black, white, gay, mm. straight, also with Starship. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, from Kraftwerk to Flashlight by Parliament Funkadelic, you know, they got to the funky stuff as well as when it was time to play Gino Socio and Giorgio Moroda and Donna Summer. Mm -hmm. And then I went to the garage and that's a whole different conversation. I think it's just all like a lot of coincidence and timing, right place, right time. Friends in my neighborhood, I lived on a very well-known block on Metropolitan Avenue. There was a lot of housing and, you know, a lot of people and friends, people you knew from school. Well, like, Danny, we know you've been to the loft. You go to Starship and in the Inferno. You got to go to the garage. I mean, they would just tell me. They knew. They knew what I was about. They were like, those clubs are great and all, but you got to go to the Paradise Garage. Mm. And I heard it over and over, but then I knew it was a membership only club and you had to go with a member. And, you know, I didn't want to attempt to get in this club at this young age and be turned away. So in some point of 1979, I finally went. I don't remember who I went with, but I remember every moment of entering, walking up that famous ramp with the lights blinking and the neon Paradise Garage sign at the top of the register. You hear the music coming through the vents I guess that would draw air, you know, or be exhaust for the club air conditioning. And it would just be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. you can even hear what song is playing. And the anticipation and the curiosity. I mean, this is even, even while you know, you've gone there three years, you're still at that moment of walking up that ramp. You can't wait to just get around that curve and see. So I paid my $15 as Green Bubble would say. <laughs> And I walked in and the first, as soon as you walk in to your left was coat check to your right was a little changing room with like lockers. So people would actually come maybe after work or, you know, in winter clothing, but would want to put on shorts and a tank top and just go sweat their ass off. 
You know what I mean? What club does that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of room. Wasn't nothing, nothing, because it was predominantly a black gay club first. And I don't want anybody to be confused with it being like a sex club. Mm-hmm. None of that. So people might hear your locker room and think, oh, what kind of theme? No, it was wide open. And then beyond that, you'd have to make a right turn to go into the main room. So I made my right turn. It was still early on in the night. Lights were pretty much still all on high because the club opened at like 1 a.m. And it was just after one. So it wasn't many people there. So when I remember when I made that turn, I was immediately standing in front of one of those very tall stacks that I happened to own actually 10. Do you, I have read that you, do you own the Paradise Garage sign as well, the neon sign? I have a replica. Yeah. It's not the original. Nobody knows where the original went. So I make the right turn. I immediately like looking around at everything, the towers, the speakers. I think there was six stacks and then fillers on the sides in the center. And he was playing Peter Brown, Do You Want to Get Funky With Me? Which, more novelty, is the first 12-inch to ever go gold. More than 500,000 copies sold. (laughs) That is cool. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. I wish I could say Music of the Answer sold 100,000 copies. (laughs) But I digress. So I'm mesmerized. Hmm. I'm like, holy shit. You know, it was more the sound than anything. And it wasn't even a full volume because, you know, Larry wasn't, I don't even, was Larry in the booth? I remember a guy being on a ladder, like fixing gels and point aiming lights and maybe changing a bowl. Larry was on another level, like a mezzanine where the DJ booth was, kind of like in a far left corner. Wasn't a centerpiece thing. Wasn't like today, you know, where the DJ is the centerpiece. Hmm. So yes, I'm mesmerized and, you know, I'm like thinking, where is this going to go now? You know, like I know people are going to arrive. And, you know, what is this absolutely going to turn into? Mm. And slowly, people start arriving and the music is soulful, funky, down-tempo. So you're in the Paradise Garage and the anticipation is building. You say, you know, you're just soaking in the whole of the scene and the lights are up, not many people are around. What was the reaction when everything started to kick into gear. Was this a point where you were like, actually, okay, I've experienced all of those other clubs now and this has brought me to this point. Is this the pinnacle? And did it inspire you as well as a DJ as well to think I want to take this vibe and create my own thing around it? Or was it just actually, I'm just here to get down and party. I just want to dance and just have a good time. No, I think it's exactly, I mean, I'm sure I had this feeling before I went to the garage. I mean, it would be probably, you know, for people to relate to this would just say like, let's compare it to something modern today. Mm-hmm. Maybe kids that weren't brought up on live bands and stuff. Now DJs are like, you know, they're superstars and how we want to look at it, they're rock heroes. So I guess if a young kid went to like Tiesto concert, Paul Van Dyke and all those mega things, they're like, oh, I want to be like that. I want to be up there. There was none of that. Larry wasn't doing that. No DJs were commanding attention. Mm-hmm. It didn't exist. So all I could ever dream, this is all all there was to imagine back then, was crossing that bridge, the Williamsburg Bridge, from Brooklyn to Manhattan and working in a big club. Mm-hmm. And Larry had the ultimate one. So it was your dream to have a job like that one day. There was no thought of production, CDs, flyers, traveling. None of that existed. 
it was just you were the DJ and you were making people dance, period. Mm-hmm. And that's all I desired to do. And that's where it got tough because, you know, there were limited clubs mm-hmm. and DJs were residents. Larry was at the garage. They were pretty much always only open on Saturdays. And then they started opening Fridays. So it was always only open Fridays and Saturdays. Once in a while, they would open during the week for members only, like a free party, twice a year, something like that, members party. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be like a Saturday, It'd just be like a midnight to 6 a.m. kind of gathering. And I don't know, I just guess I felt like I wanted to move in. I wanted to just get a futon. <laughs> <laughs> Stick me in a corner and I get one of those. And you, you kind of said that, you know, uh, opportunities were limited in Manhattan and you did move to Miami in 1985. Was that because, okay, I want to stamp my mark. I can find more opportunities outside of New York, basically. Well, honestly, that was the only opportunity. Mm. I had, um, you know, the Miami Lounge was my first gig when I was like 16 to 17 to 18. So let's say two years at the Miami Lounge. Then I was probably not, a de- you know, working anywhere for a while. I did play at my brother's prom. <laughs> <laughs> that was hysterical. But before Miami, I guess while I was now in 1980, I became a member of the Paradise Garage. Mm-hmm. Now I was an avid club goer mm-hmm. i mean not just the garage I mean, back then we had options seven days a week elephus was still open and that was a club in queens but there were so many clubs in manhattan now there was better days which was where t scott played that was open during the week there was the fun house where jelly bean was playing there was the roxy where i saw the group yellow in 1981 performing bostitch and i was like Ooh, a twist you know mm-hmm. <laughs> In 1980-81, I got a job nearby in Williamsburg in a roller disco. And I was working at the roller disco five days a week for three years. So I really, you know, learned my chops there on the next and working with a reel-to-reel, trying to do what the big DJs were doing in the big nightclubs. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're working in a roller disco, it was typical. You had to play your ballads. You had to play your pop stuff. And you had to get on the microphone and say, next song is for backward skaters only. <laughs> uh, next song is for couples only. Next song is for kids only. I don't know. But the funny thing about that era for me is that working at the roller disco, I was trying to emanate what Larry was doing at the garage. Mm-hmm. And it only partially worked. The funny story about that is that, yeah, a lot of the music was in sync with that era, all that early 80s funky stuff. That was all while I was working at the roller disco, Mm -hmm. bounce rock, skate, roll. So I was learning to professionally learn the art of DJing at the roller disco. Because now there were times where I would be at the Paradise Garage until closing 11 a.m. And I would go straight to the roller disco and do it a matinee at 12. (laughs) So my funniest story that would entertain you would to be picturing the matinee being mainly parents with their children, accompanying them on the roller skates. And here I am playing, I want to go bang. (laughs) (laughs) Feeling moody, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm playing these songs and uh, there was a phone in the booth because the booth was enclosed and I kept hearing the audio. DJ, pick up. DJ, pick up. And I would pick up. 
what are you playing? These kids want to, don't want to hear this. They want to hear something else. And all right, all right. <laughs> then I'd probably play, baby, take your time, do it right. We cannot go right in. Right back to the cheese. But when it became the nighttime sessions, then, you know, it was more about James Brown, yeah. Cast a Bunch, and, you know, the the soulful, funky stuff. And the stuff that was being played at the garage, the Sal Soul stuff, a lot of uh, Jocelyn Brown, mm-hmm. and Prelude, West End, Tiki. Those were the popular labels at the time. And once I left the roller disco in 1983, there was, uh, I guess, a good year to two years of limbo. So for, I say for almost two years, I was jobless mm-hmm. and moneyless. <laughs> <laughs> And then I got an opportunity to get a job at a nightclub that a friend of mine from Brooklyn moved to Miami to work at this club Cheers, Mm -hmm. which was a one story uh, storefront kind of venue that was a video club open in the afternoon, had their happy hour and stayed open, you know, to late night hours, but there was only video screens. They took over the next store venue and created a dance floor. Mm -hmm. Now they're going to make it a seven night a week nightclub. And Cheers was the only club in South Miami that had a legal license to go till 7 a.m. Everybody else had to stop at three. Mm-hmm. So we had a monopoly, yeah. which worked in my favor and helped me to really develop my career because I was still young, 25, whatever. And um, I worked there for five years. Mm-hmm. It was basically me and my dear friend, Tommy Moore, rest of soul. So post garage, post roller disco, now I was moving into a zone in an era where, especially Miami, their love of music was high energy Italo disco. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like neither. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> I was not a fan of freestyle. Very little. I mean, I, you know, I will give it up for some of the songs, Shannon, Let the Music Play mm-hmm. and Seabank and but once it became like cheesy, Micmac and Silent Morning, I just thought they were becoming so bleh. Mm. No, because now house music was booming for me. Yeah, I had moved to Miami, going to clubs like Better Days where Bruce Forrest was playing. There was a New York sound that was not being played. New York, Chicago. Mm-hmm. That was not being played in Miami. And every club pretty much were playing the same songs. And I don't even know if I could mention artists that were so obvious that I could not stand, like Lime. Mm-hmm. Oh, babe, we're going to love tonight. Like, oh, crushed me. <laughs> Polacacus, boom, boom, boom. Let's go back to my room. I'm like, fuck, those were like the hits ones that make the dance floor erupt. Mm -hmm. So I did have to give in and play a lot of that. What saved me was that now house music was being mixed. So if you take groups like the Pet Shop Boys, I mentioned all British groups now, the the Pet Mode, Erasure, Mm -hmm. but of course there was Taylor Dane, Whitney Houston, Madonna, Shep Pettibone, Mm -hmm. remixing all of these artists, New Order, made it great for me to now start playing because they knew the songs, the originals. Now the dance mixes were coming out and they had that house element, Mm -hmm. which I actually appreciated a lot of them. I did enjoy playing, you know, Chains of Love. I love playing that, you know, Shep's mix. But that allowed me to break into something by Steve Silk Hurley, you know, Farley Jackmaster and work Mm -hmm. to the bone and 
Liz Torres, Mama's Boy. This is stuff that no other club was playing. Yeah. This was just too funky or not cha-cha enough. <laughs> <laughs> Back then, the DJ's job was to make people dance. Mm-hmm. If you put on a song that they didn't like, they would leave the dance floor and the club owner would notice. Mm-hmm. So now it became a matter of you're losing the crowd. Yeah. Put on something they know, you know, which is entirely different than today where they just stand and fist pump you know yeah bop their heads and look at you like you know they imagine like you made every song that they're playing you know oh check this shit out the bomb you know dt <laughs> i'm like i didn't write this one i didn't write this one i'm not the artist but they look at you like you are mm. so back then If you didn't drop a Madonna record, you had to keep interjecting these songs Mm. to make the crowd go off and stay on the floor. And to cut to the chase now of where this went, when the Winter Music Conference started, it started the same year that I moved to Miami in 1985. Mm -hmm. And the two elements that really helped elevate my career was the number one of it being open till 7 a.m. and then the Winter Music Conference having showcases there as well as many other clubs. So although I missed the first conference in 85, in 86, we already, now March would come, the conference would come and it was still packed. It was a packed nightclub, not that big. So before conference, I'll say that here I am and what I just explained to you about music, what they like, freestyle, high energy, Italo disco, line, and then me playing, you know, trying to play Love is the Message. I was like, oh, they ain't getting this, you know. Mm. The ones that they're related to might have been like the disco ones, like I Feel Love mm-hmm. or the obvious. But the twist was now there was another genre in the mix and that was industrial Mm -hmm. and there was a club nearby called fire and ice and i got to know the djs there and i went there a few times and i was like holy shit because if you listen to some of these bands kmfdm and front 242 a lot of this stuff was funky and if it removed the vocals a lot of it sound like it could have been freestyle yeah because it had that same dmx drum machine or lindrum the programming but the hooks and stuff were edgy and i liked it it was like funk rock house like twisted yeah so when the fire and ice closed we get the after party crowd mm-hmm. so what was the after party cheers and i was the dj yeah so now i had them trapped <laughs> <laughs> so now that was helping me get recognition from the locals that you know, might've been used to this or that. Now that we're hearing me intertwine my childhood style, you know, of love and passion of music, mm-hmm. Jacques Morali, whatever, not necessarily the village people. <laughs> <laughs> San Francisco, that was always a fun record to play in Fire Island, but nothing after that. No in the Navy or YMCA. <laughs> so now in March of 1986, the Winter Music Conference happened it was my first one participating. I never missed one since, and that's 34 years ago. Wow. And we had showcases, and I believe one of our first showcases might have been artists like Joyce Sims, mm-hmm. All in All, Anson and Davis on the same label. They were produced by Mantronics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, then we went on to have Shannon 
Niobe, Taylor Dane, and a lot of people would come to the club for these artists because they were heavily promoted, even on radio. And um, the clubs that would do the showcasing were pretty scattered. So if you wanted to hear, I can't think of any names of artists right now. Let's say it's a freestyle artist. Mm -hmm. But they might have been in a club in Fort Lauderdale. And not everybody wanted to drive to Fort Lauderdale because it's like a 30-minute, 40-minute drive. Mm -hmm. So we had the full house. On top of the music industry, we also had, uh, you know, the delegates. So if you went to the Windsor Music Conference, you registered, you got a badge, and you were part of the daytime meetings and conferences. You know, they would have different rooms and different topics. So the delegates would come, and I became a Billboard music reporter back then. So now the whole industry knew me, Mm -hmm. but they knew me from New York. So a lot of people that started writing about me from Cheers, especially British, yeah. gave me a lot of recognition, DJ Mag and so on. Mm-hmm. Danny Tenaglia from Miami, Cheers. I was like, no, I'm from New York. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't care. I was getting attention. Yeah. So that's where it really, really, really started to boom for me. Yeah. Because again, I had the Monopoly mm-hmm. with the 7 a.m. license. I had the people coming from gay clubs, straight clubs, fire and ice, industrial clubs. And then that mixed with the music industry. And then with my style of being a New Yorker and loving house music, nobody else was playing at Miami. Not the other gay clubs Mm -hmm. or straight clubs. They wanted to hear freestyle and Italian go. Yeah. And you had that market where it's like you've got a sound that is bespoke to you. People are hearing interesting new things and you've got that monopoly in terms of that license and the club. And that's bringing all these different people in. And yeah, like you say, getting recognition, getting noticed. And so it was five years in Miami. And then was it back to New York? Um, How had the scene changed in New York in your absence? Had things kind of suddenly blown up did you find you arrived back in new york and suddenly people were playing these sounds that you were pushing in miami or were were you did you still have a sound that was intrinsic to you let me just rewind a second to say that while my stint in miami one of the things about me as a dj is that i've always also been into like a tribal percussive stuff so i've always did hunting you know it's all i ever did was hit record stores and you know go through my own collection and find Uh, records that had the drum sections and breakdowns, Mm -hmm. which is the reason why we used to buy two copies, you know, to make extend those areas. And I would elevate parties with that. Maybe it was the intro. I'd go back to the intro and keep it exciting, make it the breakdown again. And so that was an element of mine that I guess come from my upbringing in New York. And I also wanted to mention that in 1988 was the first time I ever left the country. I came to England as a tourist. Mm -hmm. And 1988 was the year that acid was exploding. And I went to Club Heaven and I went to other places, but Heaven was the first place that made the most impact on me. I went to all the record stores. Mm -hmm. I remember distinctly hearing and buying there Voodoo Ray by a guy called Joel, Mm -hmm. Big Fun by Inner City. There was a couple of acid house record humanoid, total confusion. (laughs) And then a couple of other abstract ones. I remember Annette Dream 17 Mm -hmm. and Talking With Myself by Electribe 101. That's a pretty good haul. (laughs) Just those six songs alone. Yeah. When I got back to Cheers to play them, I made them anthems. Yeah. I made all of them anthems there. 
which is not something that would have happened at other clubs in Miami. Maybe Big Fun, mm -hmm. you know, but Voodoo Ray, Humanoid, yeah. Total Confusion. Yeah. So by then, three years into it, three conferences into it, whatever, I really had made a name for myself in that community. And people were starting to know of my name globally, but through magazines. Mm -hmm. I had not traveled yet. And when I went to London in 1988, I'm not familiar you are at the Club Heaven, but I remember there was a club behind Heaven, part of it. And I went up to the DJ booth, Paul Oakenfall was playing. Mm -hmm. And he was playing Electribe 101. And I had to know what it was. I just had to know what it was. Wow. And I asked him and he was very polite, told me what it was. I told him I was Danny Tenaglia and I made that song Deep State, Waiting for a Call. He was like, oh, wow, he knew what it was, you know, came out on Atlantic Records. And, uh, you know, from there was my introduction to Paul and him wow. to me. And then um, what happened with Cheers in 1990, two things. In 1998, I made my first record, Waiting for a Call. It came out on Atlantic Records. I had built a relationship with the industry. I started doing remixes. I remixed Escape Club on Atlantic Records, Dead or Alive on Epic, mm -hmm. Baby Don't Say Goodbye, Right Said Fred, <laughs> I'm Too Sexy. Yeah. And now a massive club opened on Miami Beach called the Warsaw Ballroom. And that started to hurt everyone's business because it was the new big thing. And they went until 6 a.m. And now Cheers business started to hurt. And it just felt like, okay, now Cheers, the boss was all about money, like a lot of them are. Mm -hmm. He was slowly turning it into a women-only bar, like, you know, lesbian nightclub. Mm -hmm. And they were all about pop, you know, play the song I want or yeah. fuck you, I'm leaving the dance floor. And I wasn't having it. <laughs> so the timing was right because now I was getting a lot of calls for remixes. I had done my second song in Miami as Deep State on Atlantic Records called Everybody Get Down. I remixed Double D, Found Love. Mm -hmm. It went number one on the Billboard Dance chart. And now my phone is really ringing. Like, and the industry people that I would talk to every week to promote their records, complimenting me or whatever, and know me from New York, say, you got to come back here. All the studios are here. All the programmers are here. You know, you could see what Morales is doing, Jelly Bean's doing, Chef Betty Bone. Mm. They would just drop names, you know, yeah. Justin Strauss. And like, you got to get back here. So I did. Yeah. I moved back to New York and I immediately jumped into the studio scene and uh, made frequent visits back to Florida to play at Warsaw Ballroom as a guest mm -hmm. and Copacabana in Fort Lauderdale mainly. Yeah as well as bringing me back to Miami to play for the Winter Music Conference. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's where it became like a, a must-see or not-miss party. Oh, Danny, you go you got, you got, go into the Danny Tanaka party on the jet on a Monday, right? You yeah. Know? So that was kind of cool <clears throat> that I had, but that was only once a year. Yeah. It was kind of depressing when it was over because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have that back in New York to mm. go back to. So when I got back to New York in 1990, my life as a DJ wasn't very lucky until 1996. Mm -hmm. Although I still got started to get invited to play in Italy and London and travel mm -hmm. because of the remix stuff, I wasn't having any luck with venues in New York. Yeah. Just guest spots here and there. But, you know, again, it was still a residency vibe, you know, this DJ, that DJ. But um I, want, I don't know why it just popped into my head to mention that 
we talk about Larry LeVan and all this stuff. Tony Humphreys was a big influence on me, mm-hmm. major influence on me yeah. as a DJ with his New Jersey sound and his expertise at flawless mixing. Yeah. I learned a lot from him. Yeah. So I'm glad I thought to mention his name. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So, yeah, I mean, so you mentioned 96. What happened there? Was it you had a short stint at the Roxy and then was it Twilo that happened in 96 or was it Roxy was the launch pad? Well, Roxy hired me and um, I guess it was a guest spot Mm -hmm. at first and it went very well. And then they immediately wanted me to do a residency and they offered me like $1,500 a week. I was like, what? That was like a fortune, you know, like, wow. And um, right now, it still would be. February. People think I'm loaded, but they should only know. I got to Roxy. My guest spots uh, turned into a residency, mm-hmm. but it wasn't long, maybe two to three months. And then Twilo opened and they asked me to play after Frankie Knuckles on Thanksgiving, whatever it was. And I knew Frankie, I knew him from the record pool and, you know, great, humble, friendly person. And I contacted him and asked him if he thought it was okay because I had all so much respect for him. And just in general, I don't want to step in anybody's toes. I don't want to be frowned upon, considered like some scab DJ. And he was like, oh yeah, of course, you know, please do say yes, you know. Mm -hmm. And it really was history. Because he was uh, playing his amazing sound. Could have been, you know, Sounds of Blackness, The Pressure, all those amazing songs he was known for back then. And then about 6 a.m., I took over to do the after hours. And of course, I elevated it to a harder type of sound. Mm -hmm. I was just embracing DJ Pierre, DJ Duke, and Express 2, and Farley and Heller, and... Green Velvet. I could think of so many, but it was edgier than what Frankie was playing. Mm -hmm. And it was more appropriate for an after hour thing. It just kind of worked well. What was the what was the crowd reaction to that change in sound, you know, 
Um, I, I think of that kind of era of, of house music and my mind immediately goes to, you know, the, the, the more soulful kind of vocal sounds. And I'd imagine that, you, you know, you're introducing kind of a sparser, heavier, like techier, tribally sound, which is, which is the Danny Tanaglia sound. Yeah, that's where it developed me yeah so you know what was the crowd interaction on that like it's like a, a updated version of cheers mm -hmm. because before frankie knuckles was a dj there at twilo this was formerly the sound factory where junior vasquez was so let me just inject this back in the days of residencies when you went to Starship, it was Ernie, Donnie, Joey, Parmentieri, or Tom Savarese. You went to Better Days, it was either T. Scott and then Bruce Forrest. If you went to Zanzibar, it was Tony Humphreys. Mm -hmm. If you went to Funhouse, it was Jellybean. If you went to Loft, it was Dave Mancuso. If you went to Garage, it was Larry. If you went to Sound Factory, it was Junior. Mm -hmm. There was no guest DJs. Yeah. So I went everywhere. Sound Factory Bar was Masses at Work and Frankie Knuckles, mm -hmm. which Frankie had me as a guest couple of times as well so now having absorbed the world because now i had traveled the world as well it was like what am i going to play at twilo after hours mm -hmm. so i played an energy that was not trancy mm -hmm. but progressive a la sasha digweed ish but on a lower level like not going full-on melodic you know yeah. with the tribally stuff you know like always edgy drummy stuff mm -hmm. and then you know i'd play a lot of vocals uh and what i want to mention that would be very important for this is that in this era to 97 was when when sound factory closed and it became twilo junior vasquez went down the block to play at limelight i mean tw uh, the tunnel mm -hmm. which i eventually went to become a resident <laughs> yeah. DJ. it was very twisted at the time in new york so Junior was known now at that time, because the early South Factory days, he was very housey, very Jay Williams, Liz Torres, uh, the house music sound, you know, big beat. But then he got into an anthem type sound when he started remixing Madonna, or let's say Morales remix, remix Mariah Carey, Dream Lover. These were big anthems for him, for a lot of DJs, I guess. Tony Braxton, Whitney Houston, Christine W, on and on, you know, all these names. And he was doing remixes, as well as Peter Rahoffer, rest mm -hmm. in peace. And then there was, you know, it was a lot of it was developing from, let's say, Rollo and Sister Bliss, mm -hmm. England coming out with that pizzicato sound. Yeah. The number one being Brain Bug, it created a whole new sound for Junior mm. called Anthem. You know, he called his party anthem. Mm -hmm. I was the opposite. I was the complete opposite because by now I was absorbing all of drum code, mm -hmm. all of uh, Timo Mops. I can name all of them, you know, Marco Corolla's Zenith label, mm -hmm. uh, DJ Hell. <laughs> <laughs> I was absorbing this, but making it my way because I heard the percussion in it, the, the synth of the techno of the patterns were funky. They were Latin percussive to me. Mm -hmm. But the thing was for me to pitch them down at minus eight, burn them to CD and play them even slower because a lot of the records were made at 140, 144. Mm -hmm. So even at minus eight on the turntable, it was too fast. You have no room to mix it. Mm -hmm. And that's how I developed my techno tribal whatever mashup of 
my life sound. Mm-hmm. Although I didn't dismiss songs like Feel What You Want by Roll on a Sister Bliss, uh, mm-hmm. Christine W. I loved it. But once everything started to become like, it just started to becoming so cheesy to me. Mm-hmm. I couldn't cope. So this answer is in regarding to your question, how did the crowd react? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of them wanted to hear that. And I would only give them so much. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't bring myself to playing those anthem type songs. Yeah. Um, break my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every now and then it felt good. But Whitney, everyone was doing an anthem now because there wasn't, I'm not just saying this with Junior and Peter. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were copying those anthem mixes, you know, and they were becoming popular that the kids wanted to hear them. Yeah. I just wouldn't do it. There were some. So there were mashups, bootlegs things that were kind of cheeky and I would play them moments in love or something that was like Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. Elton John, yeah. space oddity records that would just drop down to that and kick back into something hard. Yeah. But then I would go into my drum code type of progressive hard house, techno techno. And then I made elements. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> And I, still to this day, I cannot believe, even talking to you now and hearing your voice, I can't believe that it's your voice on that track. Yeah. yeah. I use a sound effect that was called Barry White. <laughs> and when I put my headphones on, I hear myself. Oh, shit. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you got to laugh. Like, welcome to the club. Yeah. I mean, what was the uh, what was the kind of thinking behind that? Was it just a burst of inspiration in the studio or just having fun and it just became a monster? Well, obviously it was collective of all of my influences somehow just thrown, you know, into like a saucepan and just throwing all the all the ingredients. It was a mixture of everything. Yeah. So elements I guess came about from me deriving a track and then dreaming up a concept for it. I think it was when I heard my voice back with that effect that I got into writing the lyrics and coming up with the concept of taking people on a tour. Mm-hmm. And the tunnel, and it was now the residency at the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Really, if you ever went there, it was like going on a tour. In the booth, you're facing out this long crowd. But then there was something beyond that dance floor. There was a mezzanine. Mm-hmm. There was a back room where there was another DJ another room you know underneath with a small bar because it used to be a subway station mm-hmm. so really long and then there was dj in the bathroom and it was just crazy mm-hmm. so i took people on the tour yeah and i included the kojak i included the bar the lounge and mm-hmm. and the twist was elements also being a reference to like ecstasy mm-hmm. or drugs you know even though i had not tried it yet Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> <laughs> I waited until I was 40 to try ecstasy in Ibiza. In Ibiza? Yeah. Wow. Finally gave in. Gave in. <laughs> it was one of those, was it? <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've talked about elements as well. And I want to talk about, uh, you mentioned Salida. My God, I mean, music is the answer, obviously, is, you know, an anthem and always will be. One of my favourite all-time tracks is Be Yourself. Um, not only, you know, it's it, it went on to become the name of your famous night at Vinyl. Can we just talk about Be Yourself as a track 
now to this day. I mean, I was listening to John Digweed's been doing some lockdown sessions um, every week recently, and it's quite good fun sometimes because he'll be playing off vinyl, and a lot of it's like new upfront stuff. And then there was just one night where, you know, you just heard it coming in and the comments just went, it's be yourself, it's be yourself, oh my God, be yourself. (laughs) It's one of those moments where it's like, I wish I was in a club, you know what I mean? Like when you first hear that bass come in, yeah, can you just talk to me? This is just for my own personal pleasure. Take me through making that track. (laughs) Funny thing about that is that being the DJ that made it, you get such joy and such a thrill of playing it and having the captive audience and how this, I, I take the most pride in be yourself. Music is the answer and elements of many, but those three really supersede, you know, for me, those are my personal favorites. And I'll tell you why, when I was an artist on uh, tribal and twisted, now it was called twisted. The owner sent me a tape and it was Salida and the heavy hitters. So the B side to Salida and the heavy hitters, messing with my mind, Mm -hmm. which by the way, those were the kind of tracks I was playing at my groove jet industry parties. Yeah. You know, I had that captive audience of Sasha Digweed, Carl Cox, Oak Fall, Mood to Swing, Master at Work, you name it. These people were at my party. Farley and Hell, I could just see their faces now like, and now it was becoming like I could see myself in that dance floor wanting to know what the DJ's playing. Mm -hmm. I was always like that anyway. Yeah. What is this? What is this? You can't wait to find out. Yeah. And I remember playing songs like Salida and the Heavy Hitters and me, the only one having it because it was on cassette, you know, and I'm playing it directly from the cassette. I burned an acetate that mm. back then. So it was part of what helped make Groove Jet Sessions special, Seven Fisher Records, you know, back then. Mm-hmm. I'd have them first, burn them to acetate, and I would even announce what they were because I knew everybody wanted to know. Not every record I played, but I'm like... And all you want to know, this is deep dish track. And like they would applaud and stuff. <laughs> so he put me in contact with Salida mm-hmm. on telephone. We spoke and she said, you know, it was about her having this concept to do a song. And she just said right over the telephone, dancing and prancing, grooving. Keep on. Even without a track, a beat, immediately I caught it. You know, she sang the whole thing, the song, the anthem part. Yeah. Boom. I was interested. She flew to New York from Chicago, amazing personality. I love everything that she's about. Being herself was the title because, you know, she is transgender. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, of course I knew it by the time we met. And uh, part of what also makes me feel so personal about that song is that many, many, many songs that I've done, remixes, I should say, you're probably familiar with the names of people that I've worked with Peter Dow, mm-hmm. uh, keyboard genius keyboard player, and Eddie Mantia, genius piano player. But music is the answer, and be yourself, and elements. I did 100% by myself. Now, they're not very musical. That's the capacity of I could come up with piano chords, bass lines, mm-hmm. and hooks. And then thanks to programming, Logic, and Ableton, you could come up with fun stuff that works. Yeah. But neither of those required a string section or a solo, you know, like a real pro musician. Mm -hmm. And I was so happy with the outcome, but I was inspired by the lyrics. Okay, so Salida comes, we work at Axis Studio, which is Francois Kavorkian's studio on the 16th floor of the building where Studio 54 is. (laughs) (laughs) 
And he also had the penthouse or the SSL room where you do the mixing. Wow. And then there was an outdoor section here on the roof mm-hmm. of Studio 54. And then the funny thing is that in the basement of that building, like the door I would go in to go to the elevator to go to Francois Studio, right outside that door was the basement to where Chef Pettibone did all of Madonna's work. Mm-hmm. So it was a very legendary building. Yeah, historic building. Yeah. So I, you know, I created a track. Mm-hmm. I created what you hear on the song and she sang it. I produced it. I made her sing it several times, like maybe six times, sing it again, sing it again. So I have different takes of it. Mm-hmm. And then I coached the ad living part, you know, uh, to say, okay, cause it's very short when you think about it. Dancing parents and group, we're going to fly in something. It could be like, you could take no more feet ahead of the door. I got to keep on dancing. Yeah, That's it. So now we had to get into like a, where do we go from here? So, you know, that we worked on together. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then we did that pretty quickly. Like I'd say about three hours. It was kind of like lucky, a lucky yeah. session. So while she was there and she, from Chicago, you know, on a plane ticket to New York, got to go back. We're like, we got this time. Let's, let's do something else. So she said, I have this other idea. She told me that she was, her life was very in- influenced by the life of Sylvester mm-hmm. because I guess she related at a very young age to how he was. You know, he was making feel mighty real and being himself. Mm-hmm. And then right there, she sang to me, let nobody tell you what to do. Like, and I'm thinking of T-Connection, that song, you gotta be a judge in the jury too. Mm-hmm. Like I caught it right away, like, you know, but it had the impact. Mm-hmm. And it was the first line. It wasn't like their bridge to a chorus. And uh, you got to live your life and see it through. Keep on living the way you are. Just to know love will make you a star. Just be yourself. I was like, mamma mia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The twist in this song that people would never realize is that I didn't have time to create a new track for that. So I brought down all the vocals and music, you know, uh 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 for music is the answer wrote it all down. She went to the vocal booth and I had her sing Be Yourself over Music is the Answer drums. Oh, no way. And I did a simple bass line that would just work. Mm-hmm. Or if I wanted to elaborate later on. <clears throat> now, Tourism came out, Music came out, Music is the Answer came out, and the singles came out, the remixes, mm-hmm. Ish, Frawley and Heller, several remixes. A year later, she got signed to Twisted as an artist. Mm-hmm. And now we were going to do Be Yourself by Salida, produced by me, co-written by me, mm-hmm. but it was all about her, you know? And I went to the studio to revisit it and remix it. Say, okay, now I'm going to make a 12-inch single of Be Yourself. Mm-hmm. And it was very problematic. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> because I only made her sing it to drums and a bass line. Mm-hmm. So there was no melody. Right, yeah. So now I was trying to come up with music for it. Yeah. I even brought in Peter to try to do things in there to play music to it. Mm -hmm. And I was not happy with any of it because by only having to sing to the bass line and drums, she was often flat or sharp. Mm -hmm. And it was just hard to find it. So they wanted me, he was like, you're going to have to send this session to a person who can auto-tune it. Yeah. Not make it sound like robotic, mm-hmm. but fix it to where the sharps are, you know, and the flats are correct. Back then, the technology wasn't like it is today. Yeah. So the guy was like, Danny, if you want me to do this, it's going to take a really long time. So plan B, 
I went back to the studio another day and I totally approached it from a minimal Mm -hmm. type of vibe because now I was listening to Maurizio chain reaction and songs of that nature yeah that were now influencing me influencing me since Twilo convection big 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 fan of that minimal sound when it first came out mm -hmm. before it got stagnant because back then there were when you listen to minimal it was those subtle changes that made you notice yeah you know yeah, yeah. the hair raising moments yeah, it was artistic. Mm. Then it became boring, you know, like yeah. most things, you yeah, know. Yeah. So back then, though, it was 1999, and I was in the studio, and I did that, the bass. Boom, 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 boom. So it was kind of like in between her vocal, and it wasn't fighting it. Mm -hmm. And then basically I came up with a chord that comes up that's kind of like breathing. Huh, 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 you know. And that was it. Yeah. It worked for me. And I remember just being, you know, getting that Maurizio vibe going on. Yeah. And then I just did some sampling, <clears throat> made up a hook, you know, like I put the loops in there, made it funky and percussive. And done. I did that uh, gospel church organ. Yeah, the bit of beginning. Yeah. Yeah, my engineer thought I was nuts. I remember <laughs> moment. No, I love it. And even the the dub on the other side, the part two is, you know, yeah, yeah it's really cool. Yeah, because I really milked her for those mm. those ad libs. Mm -hmm. And then when it was time to do the mix, you know, it took me a really long time because now I have to go through the vocals, and it's such a massive puzzle. People don't understand that the way we used to work is we're working with forty eight tracks. You get two tape machines, putting them together recording every single track as a loop and besides the vocals. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to the vocals, you have to find the ones you like, and then you sample them. You know, it's really, yeah. really long. Talk about marathon sessions. <laughs> People don't realize those were the marathon, sometimes 30 hours, Wow. you know, wow. not out on the couch for two hours. Go right back to it. Well, worth it in the end. Yeah. So that's in a similar way to music is the answer, you know, happened as a vibe mm -hmm. similar to elements. And one last story about elements. When you hear that main hook, that rhythm, it was inspired by a song called Psycho Fuck. I can't lie about that. The, the rhythm pattern. Mm -hmm. However, I was remixing Moby at the time his theme from 007 mm -hmm. and all they gave me was that famous guitar and a vocal from the james bond movie this was it you yeah. ready the acapella says from james bond do you expect me to talk and you hear some noise it says no mr bond i expect you to die mm -hmm. that was it that's all i had to work with so i had to create this james bond track mm -hmm. And it was okay. I went a pizzicato kind of faithless way. But this is the magic. When it said, do you expect me to talk? We're truncating so I could take two samples. Do you expect me to talk? No, I expect you to die. Mm -hmm. That noise in between. And when I took that out and just made that a sound, I tell my engineer, stop. Give me a delay and some reverb. Mm -hmm. And I just went to the rhythm. Bang, bang, bang. And that's that noise. No way. Was the noise in between? Do you expect me to talk? Uh -huh. No, I expect you to die. No way. 
That's why, yeah, it was like total, like, thank you, Jesus, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take all of these elements uh, where you're going to give me all this stuff to make, you know, to do a remix with. And actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that tiniest bit and I'm going to use that for my own track. Like, brilliant. Yeah, I'm like, I was very much like, sorry, Moby, I just can't do it. <laughs> this isn't mine. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about remixing as well. I do want to talk to you about um, Kings of Tomorrow and your your legendary remix of Finally. I mean, when that first came out, that was almost like just bang, an instant like classic. Anyway, you just knew that this was going to live forever, this track. And your remix is, you know, it's arguably improved on it. And obviously you used it closing out your final set at Be Yourself at Vinyl as well. How do you approach kind of remixing what's already seen as an anthem? Is it terrifying or are you, is it motivating in terms of like, I want to really put my own stamp on it or just be really reverent towards the, the track as it is? You know, it goes this way. And this this goes for everybody that's a remixer, whether it's Dave Morales, Peter Jr., you know, whoever. If you have a great song to work with, you know, you can go somewhere with it. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we were expected to turn shit into gold, you know, and I've turned down so many remix opportunities just because of, I don't know, pride. What, what do you want to call it? I don't want to call it pride. That's not a good word. Maybe it's reputation. Mm-hmm. And which is also what I meant to say when I was talking about things I w- was playing at Twilo, but they wanted to hear more of the anthems. And I just like, I can't do it. Even if I have to lose my job, I'm not going to play that shit. So it was similar. Yeah. So finally was a very minimal track mm-hmm. that bass line and the track underneath but the vocal and the performance really lent itself to what i was approaching it as with the brilliance of peter dow we worked together i had first originally did all the drums and stuff in my basement sometimes i come up with piano parts just to give him an idea of what i want to do and then as a genius he elaborates and can see what I'm feeling, but then he'll take it to the next level. And then especially when it comes to solos, he knows what I want. But Mm -hmm. whenever I do a remix, like if anybody was to do a piano part or a solo, I'm sitting right next to them because I'm like, so no, because I'm a frustrated piano player. Mm -hmm. So I would always want it to be some kind of a journey. I wanted to start somewhere, but I always wanted to kind of end that solo where it's an out and then you could go boom back into the, strings or whatever it is yeah i need to interject here because this is emotional uh situation because mm-hmm. when i was remixing finally it was in my basement i lived in a small home in astoria queens and i was in the basement and with my engineer at the time was jim albert and i don't know who it was like 9 a.m i can't remember the time exactly i can't remember who was calling us from upstairs come up here come up here i was like why come come It was showing us the Twin Towers were hit by the plane, the first plane. Oh, my God. And we were just wrapping up our session Mm. of program. This was before Peter Dow. Of course, that was a life-changing experience for us. I mean, we got in the car and we actually drove to a bridge nearby to be elevated to see. And all we saw was smoke. This was before the second plane hit. We left. We left by then. I'm glad I didn't witness that. Yeah. I mean, from where we were, we couldn't see the actual plane. We just saw the smoke. Mm. And wow, what that did to all of us, including you, I'm sure. But me, where I lived on Metropolitan Avenue, I was in perfect view of the two towers as soon as you walk out my door. Mm. 
I saw them go up. Yeah. <laughs> and but now I had a deadline to remix finally. Mm. And now there was a mood. Yeah. No? Yeah. And an emotion. Mm. So I think as we were all feeling it, you know, when it was time to have a session and bring Peter in to do the strings and the piano, I guess it brought out a certain emotion in me to really go into the direction where it all came together as a product that you hear. I have an amazing story about Carl Cox in that song. Mm-hmm. He was, I don't know if it was the green room or a hotel room, but he was in a room listening to it over and over. And he called me to tell me how much he loved that mix. He's just listening to it over and over. He goes, they're banging on my door to come out, but I won't. <laughs> you know, like just in a, in a cheeky kind of way. Yeah. I'm just listening to it over and over, man. What a great job. And that to me is like an award. It, oh, it's almost like, it, almost like it means more to me than a Grammy nomination. You know what I mean? Because I don't strive to be part of the Grammys or that Hollywood elite scene. And, you know, because being nominated was such an honor to remix the Pesh Mode. Mm-hmm. But I didn't produce it or I didn't write it. So even if, even if I won the Grammy, it's not like I won it for music is the answer. Or be yourself. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, I'm not going to call it nonsense. It was a tribute to something. Yeah. But when you get a call from Carl, somebody you admire so much and respect that I played with so many times, you know, built a friendship. Mm-hmm. That was an award to me. You know, I know I had done good if I'm getting a call from Carl, taken out of his time to call me from his hotel or his green room. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's my story about finally, you know, with uh, <laughs> making it the anthem that it became yes, you know the absolute anthem incredible stories and thank you so much for kind of taking us through all of your career and everything i enjoy it i enjoy your personality as well you know not, not everyone you want to go over with thanks no that means a lot and yeah I, you know i always try and be nice and kind and try not to be overtly such a fan but you know obviously i am the one final question we always ask all of our guests on the podcast is we are obviously the house culture podcast and we always want our guests to try and think about what impact they've had on the whole culture of house music and what the scene has kind of brought to them in their life. As much as it's given you like a career and friendships and expanded your mind musically, you know, really deep down, what does the whole culture and scene mean to you overall? Well, obviously I've come a long way. 45 years since the Miami Lounge, 45 countries later with many returns. And it's brought me so much personal joy. And this is similar to what I was saying earlier about a Grammy nomination, like receiving an award in Ibiza, the DJ's DJ, Mm -hmm. you know, nominated by my peers meant so much to me. Nothing that can never be replaced. And being awarded in Ibiza for set of the season. And I got four Dance Star Awards, two years in a row, Best Club Night Fridays at Be Yourself at Vinyl mm-hmm. and others from Winter Music Conference. And those are the things that help me feel accomplished. And there's also stories that I mentioned about Carl Cox and everybody loves the story about Carl Cox dancing on the bar at Groove Jet because he didn't want to be interrupted. He was having such a good time. And there's so many collected stories like that, that they humble me, you know, and they make me feel like even though I ain't making a great load of money, it was all worth it. You know, like uh, I was never really in this for money to begin with. 
I make a decent living, you know, but it's not what people think because I'm not main stage DJ that gets a load of money. And I don't have any music out that brings me royalties, except for maybe music is the answer. Mm -hmm. So, and it's not much per year. It's not. But what it also brought to me is that I told you about how much I've learned from jukeboxes and live bands, whether it was rock and roll, Cream, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, Isley Brothers, all of that. But then to be able to get on a platform globally to meet and work with some of the people that I admire so much, like I'm going to be 60 years old and I'm still such a fan of this. If I get to talk to or do a set with Chris Liebing, I'm so honored. Adam Bayer, um, Joseph Capriati, Nicole Mudabar, Ali, Dish, Merck, whoever it may be. Richie Houghton asked me to fill in for him at Movement in Detroit, you know, because one year he couldn't make it. I filled in for Richie Houghton, you know, and I've had so many honors like that. And I don't collect them like I don't write them down like I probably should have <laughs> over the years. But another example of something recent I played uh, Australia and I got to play with uh, Sister Bliss. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was amazing. She was doing an amazing job and she closed out with her hit Insomnia. Yeah. It was massive. And then it became massive for me too because I, you made me think of it when I played the finally there. Mm -hmm. Got the whole crowd to sing, you know, which is what I used to actually reminded me of something that I used to do at Cheers that no other DJ was doing. I would learn them to notice that when I'm dropping the volume, that was for them to sing that part. And it became a very fun thing for them. They loved doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like overused or obnoxious, but it was just fun. It's something old school too that Larry and other DJs would do too. Mm. You know, I remember something like D-Train. Sky's the limit and you know, it'll be on, you know, bring down the volume. Yeah especially in the part where it gets into keep on keep on caressing my friend ain't no half stepping anyway the volume would be down mm -hmm. and everybody would be singing and stomping and hollering you know it was just gospel yeah that's yeah. the word that's missing from this interview mm. my roots before techno and industrial and blah 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 from motown and philly when it became into the jocelyn's the lolitas and all the soulful singers, like I mentioned, dozens, Patti LaBelle and Sarah Dash and whoever, mm -hmm. they were church singers. Yeah. And this is where my love for soul really blew up and maybe even helped me do a better job on Kings of Tomorrow because the song was already there and it came from a place of church to me. Mm -hmm. Back to what I was ending on, the expansion. Uh, Sister Bliss was playing that. I was playing in Australia finally. But what I'm trying to get that in globally, how many times I've played with Carl Cox and Fabri Slim and Sasha and Digweed. And I can mention so many names, I forget most of them. But what an honor it's been to not only be asked to play with them, open for them, close for them, whatever it might have been, to learn from all of them as well. Like I said, I'm still a fan of this. And these are people that I might have appreciated their music for many years. And now I'm getting to meet them. And even if I never got to play with them, you know, and they're meeting, I'm meeting them along the way. Mm -hmm. It still happens until this day. I remember being a resident DJ at Twilo. And then they started doing like Revish type 
parties on Fridays, which they often had me as the uh, main, like a host DJ. I didn't always play every week, but I was like the resident and have guests. Yeah. And two of the DJ three, well, many DJ vibe, DJ Pierre, but two people that I brought over, it was the first time they played in America, was Basement Jacks and Daft Punk. <laughs> and here I am bringing these guys over who impressed me so immensely, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, the names go on forever. Mm-hmm. Tony Humphreys, Frankie Knuckles, I got to play with all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I get to meet so many great people. I get to work with so many people. That's it. I mean, it's like lovely. <laughs> <laughs> It's been lovely. So what's next for Danny Tanaglia then? Ignoring everything that's going on at the moment in terms of lockdowns and viruses and, you know, what is the ideal plan when things start to ramp up again? Well, for me, I think I was even feeling this as I was describing making Be Yourself to you. And finally, how much I miss being in the studio and creating. The problem is I have a beautiful studio set up not like an elaborate recording studio, but I have tons of drum machines and keyboards and I have everything that it takes to make music. Mm-hmm. The problem is that I was always focused on being a DJ first to the point where I became the resident DJ at Twilo Tunnel Vinyl. It was five years and four months every Friday. So in between the travels, I never really learned how to personally use Logic or Ableton mm-hmm. or all the stuff before that micro composer, vision, performer, pro tools. I owned all of it, but I never learned it. Mm -hmm. So I would hire engineers to do what I wanted them to do for me in the programming. Like, you know, sit there and say, okay, I'm going to play this. Give me that. Give me the bass. Give me the reverb. Mm -hmm. Quantize this. Do that. Swing it. I just never learned and never really even had the desire to just sit in front of a screen and start clicking on this effect and this screen and that plugin and that plugin and that synth. And it became too much. Mm-hmm. And my focus was the music. I have fun tweaking sounds and stuff once I put it in there with synths and whatever, you know, what it might be. But to actually sit there and just look at all those same ticks, like, you know, what do they call that? Not a Nintendo game, but. Pong. No, oh, Tetris. <laughs> <laughs> oh i can look at this over and over the same wall Mm. you know and no so at this point now i just moved in december i moved into a very big house here in new jersey so now looking forward i still very much want to get back in the studio and create but i know that there's not much money in that you know i could put out 20 tracks in six months, how much am I going to get in return? I don't even know. I've put out a few records over the years and you don't see anything. Yeah. Got to be a hit, hit. And I just don't do pop commercial music. So I just don't think I'm going to make a living from making music, but I want to do it because I love it and I miss it. Mm. So since I've never really done anything else, all I know how to do is make music. You know, I mean, I could always get a job at Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, don't, don't do it. No, you, you know, throughout your whole career, you have you have stayed true to yourself and your sound, and you know, you've you, we've covered so much ground in terms of you saying about, you know, there are all these opportunities to play this commercial music, but as much as sometimes you might have had to play it or did play it, you know, it's never really in there, uh-huh. like wanting yeah. to play it. 
And now you're in this situation where it's like, you know, it could be another tipping point the other way. It's like, you know, stay true. It has to come from my heart or it just is not worth doing it. You know, I, I paid my dues. I played roller discos and kitty matinee sessions. And I played cha-cha, Italo disco and freestyle in Miami. And, you know, I kissed ass along the way to the club owners to keep the people dancing. But for many years now, I've truly been being myself. And the people like that from me. So now to have to think about it being a real job, being told what to do. I don't know if I could ever come forward to that. Like, I'll be 60 in March. <laughs> but, you know, I still have this youthful DJ spirit, you mm -hmm. know, that the scene and everything kept me young at heart. Yeah. You know, so I still want to get, you know, I need to meet someone that's like-minded, that's skilled with engineering and programming and Pro Tools and Ableton. And maybe this time I'll learn from them as well. I'll pay more attention. <laughs> and then we can go downstairs and make some music. Cool. That's really it. That is perfect place to end, I think. Awesome. Okay. God bless you, man. Stay safe. Bye, my friend. House Culture. Wow. And I mean, wow. You can hear the smile on my face, right? I love that one. Danny is such a nice guy, isn't he? And a real student of the scene. I learned so much chatting to him. Wasn't it incredible hearing that the signature sound from his track Elements is actually a laser effect from a James Bond film? And I loved his hilarious story about his stint doing matinee sets at the Roller Disco. Even then he was sticking to his core principles of not playing any anthems. Speaking of which, you might have noticed that we didn't do the five tracks for our perfect playlist on Spotify but I have added in some of the key tracks that you mentioned during the interview. These are The Bull by the Mike Theodore Orchestra, which was the first track he heard in David Mancuso's The Loft and contains a sample that the eagle-eared among you should be able to place. I've added in the track that was playing when Danny first walked into the Paradise Garage and as he mentioned, the first 12-inch to go gold, which was Peter Brown's Do You Want To Get Funky With Me? Also in there is Annette Dream 17, which was one of those six tracks that he bought when he was on his first visit to the UK. Of course I've had to chuck in the fourth 15 minutes worth of Music Is The Answer, which as we heard was his first collaboration with Salida. And last but by no means least, the track that he played as his finisher for his last ever set at his Be Yourself club night in New York. It's his emotionally charged and arguably better than the original remix of Finally by Kings of Tomorrow. If you want to check those out, just open up your Spotify player and search for House Culture Perfect Playlist. And in there, you'll be treated to a selection of tasty tunes that feature sounds from every corner of this thing we call house, all chosen by our podcast guests, past and present. Once you've followed the perfect playlist on Spotify, please support this podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing, and by leaving us a rating or a review on Apple. This is really important. It will help us continue to create these episodes that we hope you love listening to. They could also get you a shout out on a future one as well. This time around, I'm shouting out to the host of the brilliant Loop Music Mix Show on SoundCloud, Ben Clark. He left us the most comprehensive of reviews on Apple, saying that he's listened to all of our episodes twice already, as he's loved our eclectic selection of guests and their willingness to talk in depth about their experiences in the scene. Thanks for all those kind words, Ben. Maybe you can go back and listen to our episodes a third time whilst you're waiting for the release of Season 3 in 2021. Like I said... This is the final episode in this second season 
I want to personally thank you for tuning in and listening to me ask the questions that you hopefully wanted answered. We will be back at some point next year, so please spread the word and keep the faith. We'll all dance together again soon. Whilst you're waiting, you can still stay in touch and get your daily dose of club culture by hitting up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or by following the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. Not only will you find out when the pod is coming back on air, but you'll also be connected to other house music lovers from across the world. And finally, if you want to reach out to me, Matt Rouse, you can do it directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you in the new year. House Culture Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.